Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. Welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast. As part of our plate-up partnership with the Vegan Society, we took Blue Dot on the road to Glasgow for COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference. This episode of the Blue Dot Podcast is one of the talks from that weekend, a special live in-conversation with Chris Packham, hosted by John Robb. For more information on Plate Up and to watch this episode as a video, head to discovertheblue.com slash plateup. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Packham. Ladies and gentlemen, John Robb. <laughs> you sort of stuck there, you had to do that. Yeah. So, um, okay, Chris, uh, we got about an hour. We've got about 10 hours of stuff to cram in here. I guess, um, similar vintage, let's start with punk rock. And how did punk rock lead to uh, nature? Yeah. Um, well, I was a bit of an outcast. Uh, not one of the outcasts, obviously, but an outcast. Good bound, anybody know that? No, that yeah. wouldn't fit. Um, when, I, when I was a kid, and um, punk rock came along, and um, having been sort of alienated by all of my peers, it was an opportunity to identify as someone who was alienated, and that was one of the first things that drew me to it. Also, I was so angry at the time, so very cross and angry, um, that I sort of felt that sympathy with the angry part of punk that was sort of kicking down every door and wouldn't take no for an answer. And I'd already had sort of run-ins with authority... <laughs> I won't go into too much detail about my... Early, you, you can, uh, you're amongst friends. Uh, well, the, the, well the, put it this way, the boys in blue were always in the front room um, <laughs> talking to my dad in the middle of the night and he was frowning in his pyjamas. Um, so I'd had plenty of run-ins with authority and, 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 and my dad had brought me up to always question authority, although he kind of like liked the police um, and felt embarrassed whenever they were knocking on the door. Um, he... Um, he always said, you know, you've got to question authority. If anyone tells you something, they've probably got a vested interest and they want you to do it for their benefit, not yours. So you've got to question that. And, and that came from a really young age. So it was always a sort of a tense relationship between me and my dad on that account. And, um, and so punk came along and that was always about questioning authority. And it was also about do-it-yourself. And I was already, you know, I liked that do-it-yourself thing. It wasn't, there wasn't, a, you know, X Factor. And there wasn't, you know, it might be you. It had to be. And you had to go and make it you. Mm -hmm. So we, um, you know, went and did some dodgy jobs and got some dodgy guitars and, and rented a lock-up and wrote songs about girlfriends that we didn't have and, <laughs> and still haven't had. <laughs> I've had girlfriends, but not like the ones we were singing about, um, or not singing properly. So um, I was in a really crappy punk band, and, 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 but it, for me it was about the fact that I could make myself look different than everyone else, physically. So I had the blue trousers, I dyed my hair black initially, and those sorts of things. And, and what we can't express to people now, younger people now, is how profoundly you know, confrontational that was in the, in the mid-70s. Because it was a bleak time as well. That's the other thing. I mean, my career's talk was... I mean, I had sort of started to work hard academically, well, you know, O-levels, um, to, to try and get to university. But we still had to have careers talks. And, you know, and the careers talk was, well, if you don't get into university, and I was in a comprehensive with, like, you know, nearly 2,000 kids, um, you could always consider going in the services. And that was a bleak, rainy afternoon in 1974. And I didn't really want to join the army or the navy or the air force um so um 
it, it, was a, it was a tough time, wasn't it, when you go back to the mid-70s? Um, I mean, it's not that it's not a tough time now in a very different way, but, you know, rubbish piled on the streets, three-day week, um, two elections in a year. It was job opportunity zero, really. That sounds like this year, but... <laughs> yeah, I know, well, that's what I'm saying. So, I mean, so what, what, why were you so angry? Was that just because of that, or was that just your nature? I, um, I was angry right because I didn't, I didn't fit in and I was being alienated and I didn't know why. And, and, and people, you know, this comes back to the autism, Asperger's, which I was diagnosed many, I mean, years and years afterwards. And, um, but, uh, again, we're talking about the 70s here. People didn't know about that sort of stuff. You were just different and people picked on you. And I blamed myself because it seemed that the majority of people were in one group and it was just me in, in the other part of the Venn diagram and there wasn't a lot of overlap in that little sweet bit in the middle. And, and as a consequence, I, you know, I remember sitting down one night when I must have been... I was, I'd left school, so must have been sort of 16, and I wrote on two sides of A4 paper, everything you are is wrong, everything I am, I, I wrote, is wrong. And I just kept writing it like I'd been given lines, so I gave myself lines, and I, and I got to a point where I was so filled with self-loathing that... You know, I was in a really sort of quite dark place. And to be honest with you, punk rock shone a light into that dark place. It gave me something to affiliate to. And when I went to... I mean, I didn't, wasn't very sociable at gigs. You know, I was the one in the corner. Um, you know, as all my friends from Southampton in that area remember you as... They remember you all the gigs as the kid in the corner. Yeah, yeah. I was a kid in the corner. So I kind of liked being there, and I liked the atmosphere. I loved the music, and I liked looking at all of those other kids. But I didn't have the ability to go up and say... It's quite a good song, isn't it? You know? <laughs> but it got... I mean, I'm not joking when I, I think, you know, it, it got me through a really difficult period. And also, punk was, you know... It, it, I, I mean, we're 16. We're talking about, you know, 16-year-olds in the 70s. Very different world. 16-year-olds now, different people completely in terms of their world awareness, access to information, so on and so forth. You know, um, so political, art, music... Um, fashion, all of these things came flooding in from different directions because of all of those ideas that were being chucked into that punk melting pot. And it was so invigorating. I mean, I was hearing about poets that I'd never heard of, didn't even know existed, and, and artists and so on and so forth. So it was just like someone lit the blue touch paper and it went off. And, um, and I've continued to celebrate that and, and tried to keep as much of the um, attitude uh, as possible and it isn't difficult and I mean look there's people like us when we are born on the same day but we know lots of people we've been uh, we've been outside talking about punk rock for the last two hours <laughs> like we always do yeah. and you keep but, but, trying to get it back onto nature again yeah, we will. but I mean the key thing is you know what it's like all of those people and we still know them and although we've admitted that a few of them seem to have gone off our rails at least and have gone in different directions um, a, a lot of them have become really creative people and they've diversified in terms of what they've done but they would never have done it without that moment in the mid-70s when we all came together what i really like about what you've done you've taken that spirit and that idea and that empowerment punk and ended up in a completely different place you know it's which is quite fascinating really but this when you're on the tv spring watch wonderful program but i see the spirit of punk is totally in that Whereas most people think the spirit of punk is just... And there's such a cliche, you stupid people spitting, which it never was. No. And which I really love, you've taken the message right to the heart of England and become bizarrely like a national treasure. Well, I don't know. I said that because I knew he'd hate it. <laughs> yeah, I do, I do hate that, really. <laughs> but, it's, but it's a great position of power to be in if you've got what they, the establishment perceives as being radical thinking. Yeah. I would talk about that before the BBC. They, 
no yeah. matter how much they don't agree what you're saying, they can't do anything about it. Well, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> um, I'm, I often, you know, the P45 is always floating. It, it's floating, but it's never delivered. Outside yeah. the letterbox. Um, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think it didn't, it didn't really... I mean, what... Un, you know, I, I, I remember going to see a Clash gig, actually, and, and being really uncomfortable in the crush because I had my binoculars under my arm. <laughs> because we used to hitch in those days. So, you know, there was, yeah, a, there yeah. was a done... We didn't... You know, sometimes you'd go on the train if we had the money, but most of the time we would hitch. And we'd get lifts, no matter how crazy we looked. People in BMWs would stop and let us... <laughs> because people yeah, did yeah. that in those days. They genuinely gave people yeah, lifts, yeah. you know. And... Um, and I remember being really uncomfortable in the crush because I had um, a pair of binoculars under my arm because I was like going the next morning um, to, to go and see a rare bird. So I, I always sort of <laughs> kept the interest um, in, in, in sort of both camps, as it were. There was a sort of creative aspect and then there was the zoological aspect of that. And I couldn't see the... You know, I forget where they were playing. It was somewhere like Sheffield or something. And I went to the reservoirs the next day to see a parrot crossbill. So it was quite, <laughs> quite good to go from safe European home to a parrot crossbill. And the... Um, and, and so it, it never went away, and, 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 but the attitude was always there. And again, in, throughout that period of essentially sort of self-imposed isolation as a means of protecting myself from the harm that I experienced whilst I was at school, whilst I was going through college and university, um, yeah, it was like a shield, really. And, and it also gave me um, confidence, mm. you know, because I saw other people, and they were kids like me that come from working-class backgrounds, but they were doing... I mean, they were doing better. Well, I gave up the music and started taking photos. Of, but, you know, and they were doing amazing things. And the message was clear. You know, you didn't have to be posh or gifted or, you know, special. You, you just needed to have energy, ambition and ability. It was a punk was a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. You know, people didn't rise to the top because they were chosen. You know, I mean, they might have needed to get a record contract, but even then, in the early days, I mean, you know more about it than I do, and we, we concede, you know, um, they were only getting them if they were any good. Well, or you could just put your own record out. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you didn't need, like we talked about in the last part, you didn't need permission to do stuff. Right. Yeah, which I think was a very powerful message, wasn't it? Yeah. But you were already into the nature side before that as well, before punk, before glam rock and all your early musical things, you know, there was, that was something, am I guessing here, but I didn't remember your book was fantastic. Have I ever read Chris's book? It's a fantastic book. It's a great piece of writing, actually. Really good writing. But nature was always part of you right from the start, wasn't it? It was. And, uh, you know, and uh, I was fascinated instantaneously as soon as I could crawl about in the garden by its beauty. And I think that was what drew me to it, you know, straight away, was its perfection. I like perfection. I'm a perfectionist. I, you know, I, I, I have a, an eye for detail, as they say, and which means that I look at things very critically and analytically. And so when I saw ladybirds, they were always symmetrical. They never limped. Um, and they were not like the humans that I saw who were asymmetrical and limping all over the place. So, um, so I loved the simple beauty of, of nature at that point. And I kind of put it on a pedestal and I, and I worshipped it. And, you know, and and, and wanted to just know more and more about it. And so I spent most of my pre-teens, you know, cramming things into jam jars and tanks and cages to, to look at them and essentially worship them, you know. And I remember just sitting, you know, for ages, hours, staring at a green lizard in a tank um, on my bedroom floor. My parents thought I was 
bonkers, you know. <laughs> I was obsessed with that lizard. It was called Vite. My mother named it Vite, French for fast, because it ran fast. In fact, it ran so fast that it escaped and went under the floorboards and met a miserable end. But anyway, I shouldn't, uh, shouldn't go on about that. Was it, was it all nature, though? Was it, was it certain bits? I mean, you Nature and art. It was yeah. always art. I was always, and still am, really massively in, into painting, basically, mm-hmm. and, and looking at painting. I, I like the fact that... Um, I like that sort of aspect of human creativity, which I find it really inviting. And, and I don't do much to, to, to relax. I'm not very good at relaxing, but I can get most of my relaxing done in an art gallery. Because my mum used to say... My mum used to... My dad was into military history and history, so he'd take me to all the castles and stuff. But my mum was into... Um, what she called the arts, which was the sort of the posher bit, which was the ballet. That didn't work too well. And <laughs> opera didn't work at all. Um, but art galleries were just... I just loved going there. Because she would say, go into the painting. And I thought initially she meant, like, try and physically transport yourself by <laughs> imagining yourself in the scene, yeah. as it were. Yeah. But what she went on to explain was that it was you know go into the artist's mind go into the history think about why they produce that why do they choose those colors why do they make those shapes what are they trying to convey and there were all those sort of things that i sort of learned to ask myself so i could quite happily go there as a kid and i did wander around southampton art gallery we got lucky we got a good provincial gallery in southampton and despite the fact the council tried to sell it off it's still largely intact the collection and and i would go there and i still love the pictures that are there and i go and i see even now at the age of 60 i see different things so it, it, I had, and again, it was a form of escapism, you know, I'd, because I'd, I can. I mean, the world shuts down. I just go into into that space, and I think the other thing that I've only I only realised with the benefit of hindsight many years later is that when I used to sort of dump my homework and jump over the fence and run off into the fields. Um, it, it, I thought I was only going there because I was fascinated by the grass snakes, foxes, and badgers, and everything that I would try and find. Um, but really, it was about escapism because in that environment I was comfortable because it was just me so there was nothing to contrast me with um, and so a lot of that was just um, about finding freedom basically a freedom from um, sort of chronic uh, sort of oppression and I think that's why I spent I mean I'd spend a lot of time as a teenager if I wasn't doing the punk thing then you know I would be just out by myself wandering around in the woods looking for stuff you know. So all those things drew you in, into nature, but then as you found out more about nature, did that open up a whole other fascination to it? It's not just the art of nature or this escaping from repressive life, or it's actually a whole, literally, it is an ecosystem, but a complex ecosystem, which is really, really fascinating. Yeah, no, and I was drawn into the science as well, because I think, you know, I always say science is the art of understanding truth and beauty, and I like that little phrase because it involves art um, and it involves truth and the beauty which is the fuel for me you know I, I still go looking at stuff because I like the way they lo- like the way it looks you know I know it sounds superficial but it's not now physically the way it looks it's the way that it does integrate into those complex ecosystems that's the real beauty of it is the the connectivity um, um, in that in in that unimaginable complexity the connectivity which is functional when we don't mess it up and it becomes harmonious and semi-sustainable um, and and that is the greater beauty I didn't really see that and understand that until I was much much older you know my 20s but then I like you know I I like the the idea of um, investigating it and and the curiosity that you know science often people don't think that it involves the the level of imagination and innovation that art might have but that's not true scientists have to have to come up their own ways Mm -hmm. of of stimulating themselves um, to do 
you know, often quite monotonous and difficult jobs. I mean, data grinding is boring, mm -hmm. you know, acqu acquiring that data. And data management can be, uh, even with, you know, contemporary computing, it can be really tedious. So, you know, you've, they, they, a lot of scientists, I find, are very actually very creative people, but they're just creative in a different way. And I've always liked that sort of, you know, genre-crossing sort of... Um, I mean, I try to sort of straddle the middle ground, if you know what I mean, and act as a bridge between those people and try and articulate both of their sets of skills. I'm neither a great scientist nor a great artist, but I admire both. And if I can sort of express what they're trying to say and communicate it to other people with the enthusiasm that it gives me, then that's, that's what's become my job, really. I think you've done quite a good job of that over the years. <laughs> <laughs> About that. But, but your approach to nature is not sentimental, is it? I mean, you did a great piece of my record about the beauty and violence of nature, and, and it's it's not all cuddly, is it? It's not, no, no, it's not cuddly. It's not little at all. fluffy rabbits, no. which, which are fluffy, but there's other things prey going units, on. Prey units, they are rabbits. They're prey, they're prey units. You can't be... get any more fluffy than a fluffy rabbit. Can you? No, my partner keeps rabbits, and she equally she you know keeps you know big cats and or rescued big cats, and um, I, I've always found it quite difficult to reconcile the fact that, that she's in love with the tiger but she's equally in love with the rabbit <laughs> as long as they're not in the same cage no no although the mess the rabbits might i quite like that to happen from time to time <laughs> better not say that publicly um but no no i'm not cuddly about it I, I i like the functionality and the functionality involves predation you know it, it involves a lot of death and it involves obviously evolution is is about you know it's not about weeding out weakness, but it's about promoting strength um, in, in that sense. That sounded really sort of George Orwell. Um, <laughs> it, it, it isn't. I'm talking about it from the biological point of view. And I love the purity and uh, simplicity of that method, which has brought us to this point where we have the vestiges of uh, a remarkable you know diversity of species on the planet all of whom have been struggling for millions of years to find their own little niche mm -hmm. um, and survive in it um, and, and that's tremendously e exciting I, I think so is, it, uh, is this the most diverse I'm sure I read this somewhere but I'm never sure if it's true or not so I got the opportunity to find out by asking an expert yeah. is, is it the most diverse amount of species that ever been on the planet at any one well, time we, we don't, that we know of we, that we know of yeah, obviously yeah. but it's really difficult because because the fossil record is really good at preserving big things with bones, but not little soft mm. things like mm. slugs and snails and things like that. So, you know, a lot of animals don't fossilise particularly well. Um, but, I mean, in terms of, obviously, mammal diversity, we've, got, we've passed that point. You know, there was a much greater diversity of mammals, but we as a species put, put pay to that. Um, been weeding them out and continue to do so, sadly. Um, but, I mean... We only know of a fraction of the species on the planet. We say we've identified a million and there could be 10 million. I'm talking about animals, not even plants and fungi. Um, and we haven't scratched the surface with those. So again, I think we underestimate the, um, you know, just how much effort, how much sheer effort and determination nature has been putting into making a, a, a relatively small sphere floating in space with a relatively stable atmosphere suitable for life for a relatively short period of time uh, has come up with such enormous richness and I suppose that's one of the things that philosophically um, compels me to want to look after it uh, alongside you know another you know some of the sort of influences so Carl Sagan was a massive influence when I was a kid again my mum had a crush on Carl Sagan <laughs> and, um, and, and, and his pale blue dot speech mm. which she, I remember her reading to, to me or giving to me to read um, was you know 
still sticks with me. This is the only planet we know of. You know, and Brian Cox and, and everyone else can all pontificate, but the fact of the matter is, this is the only one. And, and the conditions for the origin of life as we know it are so par- you know, particular that it's, you know, although we're finding, you know, um, planets with moons and solar systems with complex numbers of planets and all those sorts of things, that, that at the moment we still haven't identified anywhere, given the limitations that we have, um, that could support life like ours. And so again, you know, if we're just about to trash it and it's the only one in the universe, how bloody embarrassing on the human CV is that? <laughs> yeah. It's just embarrassing. I mean, has that driven you, that thought, right from the start? Or is that something, as the years gone by, you've become more active in that role, you know, conservation role? Or were you always somebody who had a sort of conservation No, society? I mean, I think initially, I mean, again, it's a sign of the time, so 60s and 70s. I mean, mm-hmm. conservation, I didn't really become aware of conservation in that true sense until about 1970 when it was Project Tiger, WWF, Save the Whale, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Um, and again, at that point, I've got to be honest with you, you know, I was still more interested in understanding those animals than protecting them because I'd never met a tiger or a whale. You know, I'd lived in Middenbury in Southampton. I I knew a little, I'd met a few foxes and badgers and starlings and, and stuff, but I hadn't met those animals. And so I didn't feel as connected to them. Not that I needed to meet a whale. I, I just think as I became more mature and I became, you know, we started to sort of conduct an audit of what was going on. And what really turned me to the sort of activism was that there were some badgers uh, that, that lived in a set on a piece of what the council called wasteland literally a hundred meters from my house and then they decided to build on it and um and i sort of wrote to the council and i wrote to the newspaper and i took some really rubbish photos and the press came and interviewed me and turned up late and i was really embarrassed and really very very aspy and um and um anyway they built on them and they put bulldozers over their set when i knew they were in there and um, I, um, I've ne- probably never got over it, really. Yeah, I did the injustice, yeah. and, and, and I loved those animals, and I would feed them, and I'd sit and wait for them to come out. And, and um, yeah, that's, that was a, a significant turning point. And then again, it was at that point where, as I've already said, you know, struggling with authority, fiercely independent, and, and, and so on and so forth. So it was then that I became, uh, you know, confrontational, I suppose. <laughs> well, my parents would argue that it came a lot earlier than that. But, <laughs> but you know, outwardly, I, don't, I, don't, I never shy away from confrontation. You know, if something needs to be said and done, then someone's got to do it. And, I, you know, I, I've had to modify some of my methods. I've learned, actually, to be more... Um, it's going to sound awful, but m- manipulative and, and controlling in terms of wanting to get a result. Because I am rather focused on winning. And, and not that you ever completely win, but you know, I have targets and tasks that I want to achieve. And so within reason, and I'm talking about sort of not Machiavellian manipulation, but within reason, I will do everything I can to achieve that objective. I have to, because I need it to become, I need to realise it. You know, and I don't see that as a sort of a dark aspect of my personality as long as it's used for good. And if I, I don't, I hope, use it for bad, I'm trying to look after the natural world. I'm not trying to um, promote the continued use of fossil fuels by Machiavellian manipulation through government lobbying. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. so, so initially, when you start working on TV, that's, that's, I guess that's... A, uh, 
a, a further exploration of your, you know, your arty side and also explaining your love for animals, but to other people, nature. But now it's the role seems to be quite it's nuanced, isn't it? Because yes, we said national treasure, but also it's a space to actually have an effect in these campaigns as well. You are in the heart of the mainstream, which is a very good place to be to take these issues too, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um it is, because it's given me a, a, a voice. But equally, a lot of people have that voice, and they don't use it. Mm-hmm. And that's really disappointing. And I'm not just talking about people who are concerned about the environment. I think that, you know, what for me really stands out is when um, people like Marcus Rashford, we were talking about him earlier this evening, you know, when Marcus Rashford is a footballer, he's, you know, a, a, an exemplar of his skill. And I'm told, I don't know much about football, that to be a premiership footballer, you know, you are one in millions in terms of your physical and mental abilities when it comes to that sport. Um, and obviously highly accomplished athlete, so on and so forth. But he has, he's sort of using that platform to, to, to to speak out about issues which affect many people from the background that he came from. Mm. I don't see that... I mean, he might argue... I've not never met him. I'd like to meet him and, and ask him. But, you know, presumably that's because he feels the same compulsion to do so as I do. I can't let it go. I can't not say something. What am I here for? What's the, I'm not just here to, you know, uh, you know effectively, uh, you know, to, you know to, uh, as a parallel metaphor, to score the goal, get the paycheck, jump in the Lambo and go home. That's not, <laughs> that's not the game, you know. And it's obviously not the game for him either. And so I have enormous admiration for people like that, young, younger people who, who are sticking their neck out. Because I think if far more people who have far more influence than, than I do, or even he does, uh, were to do that, we'd be in a better place. Because we live in an age of influencers where people, you know, uh, will aspire to be like or and, and be like not necessarily physically but mentally and, and so on and so forth and there are good people out there doing good things um, I think a few more people with higher profiles ought to tell us about the good things that they ought to be doing good basically yeah. and is, is this because they're scared I mean because you've, you've it's been pretty scary what, what your life for the last couple of years has been instance idiots turning up and I mean you can't blame everybody not for having the resolve, or, or could you, in a way? Um, well, you know, when people are car-bombing your, your <laughs> gates, um, yeah, you, I do think, you know, why is it only... It's not only me. That's really self-indulgent. It's not only me. There are a lot of environmental activists around the world who are being killed. So let's just look at... Um, I, I exist within the cosy UK perspective. It, you, you don't have to, you know, to travel far in the world where environmental activism is potentially lethal. And every year, hundreds of environmental activists, rangers in parts of Africa, South America, activists campaigning against you know, oil, exploration, mining, so on and so forth, they simply vanish we don't even know their names, but they have the courage to stand up in their communities and, and push back against that you know, scale of destruction. And every now and again, we do know their names because they've, they've been, it's been reported and, and their platform is known outside their uh, you know, sphere of influence. Um, and, and, and they are killed. No one's killed me yet. So I think we've got to keep that in perspective. But even within this country, we have quite significant problems that need addressing. And and, and every now and again, I do allow uh, five minutes of why is it only 
you know, why is it only me? Why is it my just my gates that are burning? There are a lot of other people out there who could be speaking out um, about issues about, again, which there's no ambiguity. A lot of the things that I'm campaigning for are actually illegal in the UK, so I'm asking for the law to be implemented and upheld when it comes to the management of our wildlife, habitat, environments, so on and so forth. So it's not that I'm trying to say... Um, you know, I think we should all be allowed to drive down the motorway at 200 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm saying in sort of, you know, environmental terms, um, the, the speed limit's 70. These people are driving at 200. Can you please stop them? Because they're trashing it. Mm. Um, and it... I don't know. But, I mean, look, ultimately it doesn't matter. I'm not going to convince them. I don't suppose they're going to change. Uh, Marcus is doing his bit and, uh, you know, I'm doing my bit and many others are doing uh, theirs in a similar capacity. Maybe it's a mental mindset thing. But the other thing is, um, you know, my mum would say that I was tactless and stubborn. She would say I was the most tactless child in the world because I would always say what I thought, um, which didn't go down too well when she was getting ready to go out with my dad, you know. <laughs> Stuff like that. And, and the, um, but then also she would just say that I was sort of bloody-minded and stubborn because I just wouldn't give up once I get... Onto something, I won't give it up. I'm very task centric, so if I set myself a task, then I have to complete it at whatever mm-hmm. cost. So it, the burning gates is not going to matter because the task isn't complete. If if I'd completed the task, then maybe I could get on with it. You know. <laughs> so this is just going to go all the way to the end of your life, then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's just going to carry on. I mean, I don't have a choice, you know. Mm. And and like so many other people, I'm not going to be cowed by that sort of thing because it's actually not. It's not someone coming with a an alternative idea, is it? They're not presenting, you know, me with anything that's going to make me change my mind. Mm. It's not a creative, you know, process. Um, it's not a conversation. It's just violence, and and violence is easy to understand and 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 put to one side, really. Physical. So, so when you, when you come to an event like this to cop, I mean, there must be lots of different things going around your head. It's, it's frustrating, but it's also invigorating as well. A room full of people like this exactly. is empowering. Yeah, but I think all the yeah. invigorations on the outside. Well, I think so, but all know, change is made on the outside, as you know, was a exactly, punk rocker. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> and, and that's things. You, we come to, a, you know, they call them, what, is this a fringe event? Because I don't think it's the fringe event. I think it's these events are the main events, you know. <laughs> the, the, these are where people with ideas, passion, commitment, uh, people who are taking risks and making changes, challenging themselves mm-hmm. constantly. Um, this is where they are coming together as a community and hopefully sharing those ideas and then rechanging them. This is where evolution of our approach to solving problems is really taking place. And I would think, from my experience, that there's a lot more energy and ability in the fringe events than there is inside the main building where people are so constricted by ideas that they built for themselves which are rigid and inflexible. And that's why they say that some of these conversations are difficult. Nothing's difficult, you know. You can do anything. We did. This goes yeah. back to that. I mean, I hate to say we're going to go, be going back to punk rock all night, but you know, <laughs> it, you know, it, it, nothing is impossible. And, and when I hear politicians saying it's going to be really tricky, that's impossible. That's a lie. Nothing is impossible. If they want to solve problems, they can solve problems. Everyone in this room has been confronted with problems, and if they haven't solved them yet, they're attempting to come up with solutions and we're obviously we're in a place where we're going to talk a bit about um you know the way that we eat and what we choose to eat and and that's only one part of our life um but you know 
that's that's the, the way I see it. And ultimately, that's what gives me hope. Because if they don't achieve anything in there, we are achieving a lot out here. And our numbers are constantly growing. And our energy is constantly growing. Our frustration and anger is growing. And as long as we find methods, we will therefore win mm. because we will hold them to account and i think really it's the citizens of planet earth that are going to solve this problem not people that turn up grandstand eat a load of haggis <laughs> and then fly you can get away. vegan haggis but they probably didn't have you can that. Yeah. yeah you can but they weren't though were they? And, and then fly home in their in their private jets mm. i mean they're they can't even think that through. And so collectively, I think that when it comes to, the, you know, the intelligence that we require to solve these problems, um, I'm not saying that they're all numpties in there at all. There are a, a, a lot of bright people um, um, and, and so forth. But maybe their approach is not the one that we would take. Do they ever speak to you at all? Do they, or is it just yeah. like, you know, you go to Parliament and you get a two-minute thing? Or is it actually serious conversations? Yeah, no, on? we have serious conversations and I'm invited to briefing and all of those sorts of things. But the thing is, you you know, I have a serious conversation with someone and, and, and politicians that I meet are actually understanding of the problem. I say they're not all... There's, there's, we mustn't get into this mindset that they're all idiots and numpties. They're not a, a, at all. And a lot of them have a, a deep-rooted passion for and an understanding of... Uh, the nature of the problems and a real desire to try and sort them out. But they live in a system which is so inflexible and corrupted that they, they, that they simply can't achieve that, even if they were to die trying. Yeah. I mean, how can we approach environmental issues with, when we have you know, politicians which are basically set up for four-year terms of office, which means that they get about two years to do anything if they have a majority? And what we've long argued... Um, but I've always been told is idealistic, is that the issues which concern us most should be apolitical mm -hmm. because the, the investment required and the time periods required and the access to um, you know, technologies that are, are required um, are, are too confined by you know, our political systems and the way that they've been designed. That just it's not going to work, and I think that John Kerry went to China on three separate occasions uh, prior to this COP, and he basically said to the Chinese, "Look, we 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 don't get on in terms of trade, and we don't get on in terms of human rights, but we've got to solve the climate issue. So here's the negotiation table when it comes to all of these other." political issues can we take climate biodiversity loss off of that and put it on a separate table so that whatever happens we talk about that we make progress about that even if we don't agree on this and the chinese just said three times flat no to him you know because they want to have climate and as major polluters and so on and so forth and they know they've got us all over a barrel because they are the, the factory of the world now. Um, they want to have that as a negotiating tool which to me is fundamentally evil because you know it's not about China, it's about every living, breathing you know, sliming, stinging slithering <laughs> creature on this planet, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are, are you optimistic about the future, or, or is, it, is it sort of swing? This, this is what around. gives me optimism. Yeah. This, this is the, it's this, it's this. It, it, it's people like our audience, and 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 and, and people like you, because we turn up, and you know, like have conversations with people, and, and we share that sort of attitude and mm. approach. 
Um, and, and, and that, I find, is, is, is really refreshing. Um, and there are a couple of other people that I sort of... They're my go-to people, if ever... I, I don't waver, but I do notice that sometimes the attrition becomes chronic and I'm just sort of ground down a bit. And I, I met one of these guys the other day and we just sat underneath Gandhi opposite Parliament. I had to go in there and, and, and do something. And... Um, and uh, by the time I'd finished, I just sort of felt a little bit reinvigorated because there are a lot of people out there whose minds are in the right place, who have the ability, um, and, and, and at some point, you know, when it's our time, we will be able to stand up and, and make that difference. It may not be, you know, I mean, I'm hoping that it will be sooner rather than later and therefore that I can play a role in that, a small role in that, but it may well be that, you know, I'm 60 years old, not going on forever. Um, it may well be that it's the younger generations. And again, that's why we invest, you know, well, I and others invest so heavily in them at the moment. And I think one of the fundamental problems that we face is that we do not delegate enough power to younger people. If you look at that bunch of crusties that have just crept in and crawled away, um, you know, <laughs> frankly, they're too risk-averse. Um, their finger's not on the precise pulse. I listened yesterday to a young scientist who was talking about a project that she was outlining. It was due to, it was all about neurophysiology. Um, so I listened to her and I was trying to Google as fast as I possibly could to keep up with what she was talking about because <laughs> yeah. I'm not a neurophysiologist. Um, and, and she'd won an award because her project was designed to be used without any animal ex experimentation. That was my, my interest in that with the Humane Research Trust. And um, I just sat there listening to her talking and, and, it, and I just sort of felt euphoric. Mm. She was a remarkable young woman, you know, bright, energised, you know, ambitious, driven. And, you know, and I sort of thought, that's the sort of people we need making decisions. Of course, they make a few mess-ups because we made quite a few mess-ups, you know. Um, but who cares? Let them, you know. And I think if we... The young people are now using their voice. Let's let them make some decisions. Let's invest in those young people. And I think when it comes to citizens' assemblies, that's great. We need them. But let's just make sure that there are people in there that are, you know, under 30, under 25, under 20, you know. There are people there with, in those age groups with ideas and ability that we really must harness at this point. Yeah, I mean, as a fellow old dude like me, yeah. exactly the same old dude, but... Um, do you take optimism from the youth? You know, the under-25s, the under-20s. I mean, like you're saying, but it's, it seems to change generation, a very switched-on generation that's actually making the changes, probably because it has to, <laughs> because it's, it's going to be a hostile planet. Well, they're looking down a barrel of a gun, aren't mm. they? And, and we've made that gun and we've loaded it. And therefore, you know, we're doing everything we can, I'm, you know, get up to unload it. You know, I'm running out of time. Therefore, I must work harder and harder and harder to redress some of the hideous declines and decays that I've presided over. You know, and I can't help but carry that as a burden of guilt. Because whilst I've been a conscious conservationist, we've seen catastrophic declines here in the UK, all over the world. Since 1970... I mean, I don't need... I've got all the stats, and I'm always trotting them out on TV. But, you know, since 1970, we've lost 68% of the world's wildlife. Now, I remember 1970, because someone stole Bobby Moore's... He stole a necklace. Yeah, and, and, the World Cup. And, yeah, and, and, yeah. and Gordon Banks pulled off that remarkable save. I remember watching it in my parents' front room. It's a tangible period of time for me, mm. you know. Um, so, and, and then all of that stuff's gone when I was meant to be looking after it. And I don't feel good about that, you know. We, 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 what the, the, the attitudes and anger and, and, and everything that we're doing now, I just wish we'd been doing it 20, 30 years ago. 
you know. I think we have to tell you solace in the fact we've actually finally got round to doing it yeah. now. Because <laughs> yeah, it no. could have just get getting kicked along the corridor forever, couldn't it? No, it couldn't. I mean, people... This is what's going to happen. My pred- this is a, if you want a prediction, you know. I said to someone yesterday, do you know what? Perversely, it would be... In some ways, it would be better if this conference were to largely fail. Symbolically, at least. Mm. Symbolically fail. Not catastrophically fail, so that, that there weren't improvements. But maybe there was a few symbolic mess-ups. The private jets, the poor diet, all of the nonsense, you know. Um, because all that's really going to do is motivate us to be more frustrated, more angry, more determined. And ultimately, I think, you know, when climate change starts to hurt the wider British... UK, you know, uh, UK population more because at the moment it's been a bit cosy here, hasn't it? We've had a bit of flooding and mm. food prices a bit, you know, get up and down. But uh, you know, but we, it's easy for us to just turn on TV and watch California burn and and Cyprus and Greece burn. If that isn't in our backyard or was, you know, up until relatively recently in our backyard. Um, then um, you know, it, and it seems we're brought up to think that's all a long way away. But then at the same time, and this brings us on to food, you know, we go to a supermarket every day and we buy food that's come from all over the world. We, we are connected to the rainforest of Sumatra every time we have a cake or a biscuit with palm oil in it. Mm. It is a small planet. Things we buy here, eat here, have an influence there and vice versa to, to, to uh, some extent. Um, and so, you know, if you drive from... Land's End to John O'Groats. I'm not suggesting that you should, um, but not with the current traffic situation. But if you, <laughs> if you were... And, no, not in a car with petrol or diesel. No, you know, you, you could recharge it, actually. I, I drive to Scotland electrically all the time. It's mm. fine, but whatever. Listen, if you drive from Land's End to John O'Groats, right, and, and you only have to do that 14 times... Right. If you want to drive to West, and no, you can't. Cause, but if you could, again, you know, this is hypothetical. I don't like hypothetical because people I'm like this people, one. Though it's going, yeah, it's going badly. It's like a joke that's going badly wrong, isn't it? Really, it's like I've ruined the punchline. But what I'm saying is, Australia is only 14 times that distance away. It's a tiny little planet. Mm. You know, the butterfly's wing does start a hurricane on the other side of it. It is all connected, and we've connected it in our in the way that we exist now. Mm. We, we don't exist in, in, a, in, a, in a UK bubble or, you know, a European bubble. Um, you know, we're connected to all of that world, having a, a positive and negative influence on it. And, and, and people don't get that. I mean, putting that in nature terms, like, like the amazing, like the swallow flies all the way from Africa yeah. to your back garden, it just blows my mind. And when we were kids, small, we called them it? British birds. You know, I had a book, yeah. it, was the, it was the book of British birds, it had swallows in it, and they spent like four months here, you know, most of the time in other parts of the world. There were species actually like nightingale and cuckoo that spend even less time here. They're not mm. British birds, they're birds of the world. Um, and, and now, we obviously, we, we, we accept that, um, that connectivity. But I don't think the broader public have quite grasped that yet um, but I do think that when we start to hurt I mean the human species is really good at cure just not so good at prevention we've got all the means of preventing and have had all the means of preventing this crisis for, for some time well, not all but enough to really make a difference and we would have evolved more because we're clever um, but the um, but we haven't been implementing and it's always like we always have to trip up and hurt ourselves before we fix anything um, and I think that again, you know, at the moment, it's just not probably just not hurting enough here. I think a positive I would take from it is that probably every species, you know, nature is violent as well. 
doesn't really care about any other species at all. But we actually do as humans. We, we're very good at destroying the planet, but also we kind of care about it. It's, it's kind of weird schizophrenia going on here, isn't there? It is. Um, the thing is, I think when you say we, at the moment it's less than 25% of us that care about it. Um, and again, we know through scientific studies that if you want to change public opinion, so if the vast majority of the public think that black's white, and you need to convince them that black is black, you need to gather 25% of the people believing that. And by the time you get to about 27%, it just cascades instantaneously. So when we're campaigning in the way that we are, the, the real struggle for it is that you don't know what, where you are in terms of that percentage. You could be at 10%, or you could be at 24.9%. Mm. And it's very difficult if not impossible, to know where you stand. So that's why another one of my lifelong mantras needs to come into play, and that is, for me, winning is not about ever achieving, crossing a line, getting a cup, becoming a national treasure. <laughs> um, winning is not giving up, because only by not giving up do we keep the momentum that we will get to that 25%, and then it will all, and 27%, and it will all just suddenly cascade. And, you know, if 27% of the people uh, in the UK cared about the fact that the Faroese had murdered 1,400 dolphins in one afternoon in the most bloody slaughter that you could ever imagine, by now they would be so irate that our government would have instigated the necessary trade sanctions with the Faroes and kicked off a real hoo-ha and, and other governments would have, you know, rolled along and, and it would have been put to an end. So we do care, and I think those of us who care, care a lot, but not, we haven't, got to that 25% point. But I think climate is, and is going to be that point mm. because, you know, it, it will hurt us. And when people start hurting, they start caring and they want change. And then they'll turn to people with the skill set to affect that change. And those people need to be poised and ready to do the job. And I think that's what this is all about. This is what the fringe events are about. So, so how long are you up here for then, Chris? Um, so I'm here today. What day is it? Thursday. I don't know. Lost track. I've got to go back for a day. I've got to go back for a day to do something for Compassion in World Farming. We've been. Uh, I've been working with them for a while, and another group called Open Cages campaigning about conditions for chickens. And so I've got to go back for a day, and then get back on the train and come back again for next week. And then I'm staying on for a couple of days afterwards. So. Um, yeah, sort of tr trying to hang out, trying to you know be inspired, mm -hmm. um, but by people that I, that I meet, and 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 it's not difficult because I meet so many people who are so driven um, for for their you know with their part of the solution that when I just do feel that actually this is a very healthy place to be at this point in time. We talked about our lush events that we've been to, which bring people of similar ideas together on a much smaller scale, um, and how we've come out of those thinking, God, oh, it's the best thing I've ever been yeah. to. Glowing. You know? Glowing. Yeah. And smelling nice. You meet people that are <laughs> campaigning against, you know, the way that immigrants are treated or slavery. I mean, they're not things that are necessarily our campaigns, but they're just so inspirational. And that's what you just... I bumped into a bloke outside my hotel this morning, and after five minutes, you know, I, I just wanted to go to the park and see the sunshine. But, <laughs> but after five minutes, I went back in and just sort of felt like... Like I wasn't the only human on the planet Earth. There was, there was, he was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and he wouldn't stop talking because he was so brilliantly engaged. You know, it was just perfect. You know, Are you gonna have any time to do any bird spotting or nature stuff? No, don't think so. Um, 
no, I sort of partition all of that these days. Uh, the main thing that I sort of um, get off on is just walking with my dogs in the woods. I've got mm. two poodles. and, um, and how, how are they? Uh, they're all right, actually. Yeah, yeah. Sid and Nancy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope they're better to behave than the, uh, uh, no, the names. No, <laughs> they're, 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 their names were perfectly chosen. To have, <laughs> you know. um, so while Sid doesn't have a habit that's too bad at the moment... Well, he does have... <laughs> Habits that are probably even worse than Mr. Vicious's. Um, but um, I'm not sure that Sid was always shitting on the carpet. But... Maybe. maybe. Well, uh, well, even if he did, I'm sure Nancy didn't roll in it. But, you know, uh, that, that, that occasionally happens. Um, so, I mean, I, I just like going out in the woods. It's a, I, I like sharing my space and time with them. I, I sort of, they're a massive part of my life. And I go to the same place, and it's, um, it's somewhere where I know all the trees because I'm weird like that. And I don't name them really. I'm not that weird. Um, but, but I know them all. I know where they stand. And I like sort of seeing them change and grow and bits fall off and some fall down and, and all that sort of stuff you know and it's sort of um, if I get that sort of fixed that keeps my mind in the right place uh, generally and then every now and again you know because I'm not a very sociable person but every now and again for for one reason or another I bump into people and they they give, sort of give me a bit of a, a pick me up again we, I went we went to see a colleague of ours that we saw the other day for a night and I came away the next day thinking that, you know, that, that bloke, you know, is, is doing... Some, and his wife, actually, the pair of them are doing some really good stuff. And, um, and, and that's sort of quite, quite heartening. But the other thing is, of course, that, you know, I'm on this real sort of drive and I think we all are, in, in a way. I'm just sort of, like, almost approach it with, like, a religious zeal. Um, in the, I'm constantly auditing my life, so I'm sort of in a process of constant correction. So I'm always on edge now, you know, because I'm conscious that, you know, I, 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 this is the time to get things right when those opportunities arise. So we're constantly making decisions about how we live our lives and how we should be. Um, and it can be quite torturous because not everyone can take advantages of those opportunities at the same time. There are things I'd like to do, I simply can't afford to do them. I don't have the money to do them. Or they, they don't integrate with my lifestyle. So, you know, all of the things that are immediate to me, then I'm really conscious of the fact that I, this is the point where I've got to do them. So food, I mean, this is the key thing, because I... You know, I haven't been eating very much, actually. I won't tell you why. It's a bit of, Sid, it's a, bit of a Sid story, and we don't want to hear about it. But <laughs> anyway, uh, when I'm normally eating every day, it's one of those things that we can make an immediate choice about. Um, and so, you know, I try to eat healthily. Now, I don't necessarily eat healthily from my point of view, because I quite like dirty vegan food. <laughs> and I had a fabulous burger here earlier, by the way. It's just, um, it was, um, when I call it dirty vegan, I don't, it's not insulting to the chef. Um, it's just that it was like a massive amount of burger and chips, and I was sticking it in my face. And it was absolutely delicious. Um, but, the, um, so, but obviously it's healthier in terms of our environment and, it, and in terms of animal welfare and so on and so forth. And that's something that no one can stop me doing. You know, My mum tried to stop me up to a point or tried to force me to eat things when I was a kid that didn't work necessarily well. But, um, you know, and we... We're lucky in the UK. Most of us do eat every day, um, and, and therefore we do have the ability to exercise that choice when it's available to us. Not everyone has the same choices that you and I might have because they might not have the same budget to spend on food as we have. But as long as we communicate those choices to them and make them available to them as and when that's appropriate, then they have that capacity to make that switch. 
and um, and that's that's really important. It's not just food; it's it's everything else in our life that we can audit. Um, but food is a key one, and I think food is another real key one when it comes to young people, because obviously a lot of young people are so disconnected from the natural world now. But everything we eat comes from that natural world. It comes out of the soil. It's a product of ecosystem services earth. You know, it's, it's grown or it's harvested, um, and we eat it. Um, and so that is a great way of reconnecting, I think, young people to the environment. But the key... I think that we've got to overcome. To, in order to make this work here in the UK, there are a couple of th obstacles we've got to overcome. Firstly, and it's never popular to talk about this, but who cares? Um, that is, we pay less for our food than any other country in Western Europe as a percentage of our income. And that's not saying that people can't afford to eat properly because they can't um, in, in this country. And that's a, 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 an inequality that I didn't imagine we'd be living with you know, after everything that we were doing in the 70s and 80s. It's a tragedy um, that that is the case. But nevertheless, we spend less of our income on food, and therefore we don't pay the proper price for that food. And we also buy the wrong type of food, because we buy New Zealand lamb rather than, you know, Welsh lamb, Scottish lamb, people who are eating meat. They're not putting the pound in the pocket of the struggling British farmer... They're putting it in the pocket of the supermarket, which is generating huge food miles to bring an animal which welfare standards aren't as high as they are in the UK, and even they're not high enough, and they're shipping it all the way across the world. And there are parallel cases with plant-based and so on and so forth. So, OK, so why is that? Well, firstly, price is one thing, because when you look at all supermarket advertising, food advertising, it's always about price. A little bit about quality, but only at the upper end. You know, Waitrose might be bragging, Marks and Spencers might be bragging about quality, but Audi and Lidl are talking about price in the main, in the main. And then the second thing is that when you go to buy that food, the labelling is so poor that you and I, even when we want to make a choice, cannot make an informed choice because the labels are... There's either no information um, or there's misinformation. And all of these brandings, Red Tractor, all of that guy, they, they've all been exposed as being entirely bogus. So we cannot stand there and look at the environmental cost of our food. We can see how much it costs in pounds and pence, but we can't see how much it's cost the environment. And it really bugs me. You know, I want to be able to make those choices. So I don't want to buy the most expensive biscuits, you know. Um, I, I, I want to buy... The, I don't eat that many biscuits. I just have a few in the house when people come round, and that's about once a year, and they're stale. <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know, you've never been to my house, have you? No. Sorry, it's nothing personal, but, I well, mean, you know... When, when you arrive, I've got a stale biscuit. I've got a stale biscuit for you. I won't blow a car up next time, then. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but you know what I mean? But, but you can't just look at that labelling. It's not there. And so it's really difficult. And, and you know, uh, I always say, you know, being vegan isn't a one-step shop to ethical eating. Because a lot of vegan food's got a lot of packaging. It's transported around the world. A lot of it's packed full of palm oil, and we know that that's not good. So, yes, you've, you've made, you know, a significant step in the right direction, a very significant step in the right direction, but the job's not finished. You've got to continue to think about if you want to and you have the time and you have the ability and perhaps you've got the wallet um, to, to, to make those sorts of choices. So it doesn't stop there. You've still got to look at where it all comes from. And I think people, you know... People like us are diligent. We want to do that. It becomes a project for us because I talk about that, that audit, that constant audit. 
But for people who are struggling to make ends meet, walking down the aisle, um, even if what, what I, I really hate, and this is, comes back to the chicken commitment that I'm, I, I'm with at the moment, is that you know the argument that comes from the supermarket is that we can't sign up to giving these animals a standard of welfare which is in any way reasonable um, because of the price point. So that's bad news for those birds, but it's also bad news for the environmentally conscious people who can't afford to make a choice. Mm. And that, I think, is equally sickening as far as I'm concerned. I would imagine what that would be like. Imagine if you're a young kid who's into the environment, but your parents haven't the ability to be able to buy the things that you want to make a difference. God, I mean, that would, that would turn me into a punk rocker. <laughs> <laughs> Not that again. <laughs> so so it's, it's a lot of uh, bits of the road to go down, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there is. But I do think that it will happen quite quickly. Again, if you look at human history and the way that we solve problems when we're confronted with them, we kind of sort of tinker around the edges and that's what we've been doing tinkering around the edges and then all of a sudden it cascades and we solve those problems really quickly um and for all of its ills you know the human species is immensely intelligent and adaptable and resourceful um imaginative and innovative and when we're confronted with 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 things um we, we do develop the technologies the abilities the practices um to to overcome them and I think many of those are there, stacked up, ready to go. And I think that when it does change, it will change very quickly. What the sad point is that by that stage, we would have lost more than 68% of the world's wildlife and, and, and other things too. It's, it's a tragic indictment of our conscious, you know, our collective human consciousness that we will continue to destroy things until it hurts us so badly that we simply have to fix them. Because... That will mean that you know generations of people won't hear skylarks and nightingales um, and turtle doves and, yeah. and those sorts of things, and they will become merely historical documents. Which is a pretty profound way to end the in conversation. So, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Chris Buckham. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was brought to you in partnership with Plate Up for the Planet and the Vegan Society. You can find more information about this podcast series and the Plate Up pledge at discovertheblue.com slash plate up. Subscribe to the Blue Dot podcast wherever you're listening and drop us a review if you've enjoyed what you've heard. Don't forget, Blue Dot returns in July 2022 for another extraordinary weekend of music, science and cosmic culture with Bjork Orchestral and much, much more. Head to discoverthebluedot.com to find out more.